Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. We are sitting here in the studio getting it done. Mr. Jake Myers, how are you doing over there? Doing well. Doing well, man. Getting ready for doing a... We're going to do a, an awesome interview tomorrow for a future episode of the podcast while we're doing a pretty sweet turkey hunt. Mm-hmm. Just got back from a birthday dinner for the Mr. Gingerbow Hunter over here. The old Gingerbow Hunter. Mm-hmm. Had some big old steaks. It was good. So we're getting in late tonight, so we thought this would be a good opportunity to drop an episode that we've actually been holding on to for a while. Yep, absolutely. Uh, with uh, Brittany Perry, uh, or Britt, she goes by Britt, but I think I called her Brittany the whole freaking podcast. <laughs> uh, but anyway... Uh, from uh, NWTF, uh, she's uh, one of the area biologists uh, for Louisiana uh, for NWTF, and she actually one of her big passions is um, falconry, uh, and it's pretty interesting. Kind of started talking about uh, the aspect of using a bird of prey for hunting, and it's actually way more intense than I thought. You know, you and me ran into a guy back at Oak Mountain State Park that was two years ago. It was. Mm-hmm. Uh, February of 2020. Yep. And he had and his uh, hawk with him. He had his hawk with him. Actually, he found him on Facebook and everything. Oh, uh, really? And, and, and Brett talked about her. Um, but anyways, that was the first one I've ever seen in person, guy that was using a hawk, a red-tailed hawk, uh, squirrel hunt. And, and this dude was just walking down the road with a hawk. Dude, as, yeah. And this, I mean, literally walking down the road, we are like, look at that guy. In, in the state park, and he like walked over <laughs> at the archery range, and the guy like walked, they're like, he, we, like, hey, man. He like walked up to us, we talked to him for probably like an hour and a half with his, with his, uh, his red tail. Mm-hmm. But anyways, it's it's super fascinating. Again, it's kind of like um, not to get too sidetracked with like the whole dog aspect where we talk been talking a lot about like kind of like the gun dogs uh, recently uh, for you know upland hunting a bunch of different things. It's like again, you're using an animal to actively hunt with you and, and for you. It's pretty interesting, kind of her background getting into it, and then also being one of the area biologists uh, for NWTF as well. But yeah, dude, it, it was a fun conversation. So mm-hmm. definitely pretty entertaining, just to kind of give an idea of you know, what that aspect looks like. Cause that's some interesting questions about like, how do you like, what is the lifestyle of someone that owns a hawk and or falcons at the house? Yeah. And like, can you go on vacation? Can you, I mean, yeah, I, who, are, who are you like, can I, where can I board my hawk? Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm, like, I'm like, I can't like, I'm like, I can't like be call call like, you know, call someone up, but hey, Andrew, I need you to come up here and, and uh, you know, feed the hawks. Feed the hawk every <laughs> so, day. Yeah. But anyway, uh, it, it's a fun conversation, guys. I think you'll thoroughly enjoy it and give you a different aspect again. Uh, when it comes to just spending time in the outdoors and there, there's all kinds of stuff like this. I mean, it's kind of, again, these people about, you know, that are interested, uh, like this kind of group of people, uh, like Brit that's interested in falconry and, you know, working with hawks and falcons, uh, I mean, are in the weeds. I mean, very much kind of like a lot of the people that we know and good buddies of ours in the hunting dogs and gun dogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, very in the weeds. There's a lot of detail on the training aspect and how she talked about like trapping a wild yeah, and how you get it, that's something that, that I found really interesting is, like, how do you come in possession of a hawk that's what and I was or a falcon? Because you, you ain't just going and buying one. No, no, no. Actually, well, you can. She she actually oh. talked about, I don't know if she talked about the episode, but she talked about off air. There's some that you can actually buy from breeders, um, and huh. it's, but it's different. Uh, but, you know, they trap wild hawks uh, or falcons. You know, to do, Yeah, anyways. Um, which is, you know, interesting because I was like, okay, are you like gra- like going for that nest and grabbing them? Like, no, no, no. Like, you know, they're trying to find a juvenile that's actively hunting and use some traps. And we talk a lot about that and kind of, you know, how, you know, you go about, you know, it's not an easy process. You got to go through apprenticeship. You got to go through, you know, testing process and, and pass an exam uh, and you go through a two-year apprenticeship before you can truly go out on your own and do it all solo. Uh, so it's super, super interesting. But again, this is something else to kind of put out there for you guys as uh, some uh, interesting content. That makes you think like there are a ton of things out there that you can do. And hey, 
I don't know. Maybe, maybe you'll be like, after you listen to the episode, like, man, I want to look into that. You know? Now you're going to go down the rabbit and, hole. I, I did for a, for a little while afterwards, but my eyes like, know. Oh, we were all, we were all <laughs> laughing so much. We're like, this is it. This week, Jacob's getting into Falconry. <laughs> I think we mentioned that on a bunch of episodes. Uh, yeah, yeah, the is. NWTF, like yep. you were jumping around, dude. It was like, okay. Oh, man. Turkeys, falcons, habitat. You're like, every day it's something different. It was fun. It was fun. But th- definitely, I'm going to try to do a couple hunts next year with a couple of people. In Alabama, on uh, we're gonna do some uh, maybe snipe hunts and, and uh, mm-hmm. do that with a falcon uh, from from uh, another uh, handler in the state of Alabama. It actually, works for uh, Quails Forever. Nick, I can't remember Nick's last name, but anyways, uh, all these guys I know is named Nick. <laughs> Come think about, it. we know too many Nicks. Way too many Nicks. Nicks, Nicks for for guys, and they're from like they're like late twenties. To like mid thirties, like Nick's a very common. Name. <laughs> uh, but anyways, uh, other than that, that's all I got, dude. I mean, other than this week, you know, had that uh, episode came out on Monday talking about the, uh, you know, slow days of turkey season. You know, you have them kind of. There's a lot of failures, and you got to kind of push your way through them to have that success. Like like what you had this morning. Yeah. Oh, it was terrible. Yeah, I went out this morning, and we just had like a massive storm come through, and it was ending at like four a.m., but it was still misting rain through like five. So like everything was hundred percent soaking wet, which I mean it is what it is. But I was trying to find my little chair, which actually I stole from Andrew. Took from Andrew. <laughs> trying to find Andrew's little chair. Andrew's little chair. Look, it's a real, you know, it's a little trick chair. And I couldn't find it. Come to find out, I forgot Michael Perry has it <laughs> because he because I used it in Iowa when I shot my deer in oh, Iowa, yeah. and then he borrowed it, and I haven't gone to get it from him yet. So so he's got that chair. So anyways, I had a soaking wet butt the whole morning with no gobblers talking, nothing talking. Well, I was sitting in a good spot. There's some sign there, and it's a spot I looked at during deer season that I'm definitely going to go back to. Um, yeah, chalk it up as a deer scouting trip. Yeah, that's yeah. what I do on bad turkey hunting days. I'm like, well, I looked in these woods, and now I know it's there. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's a spot I think, especially on a day that they are gobbling, it's a good location not only for potential roost sites, but also where I think birds are going to end up at um, on those hills. And it's like you you get a really good idea of like, okay, I can pl- you can play off this one spot pretty easily, depending on what direction they're gobbling it. You can make a play mm-hmm. on them from this one position. So. Yeah, it's a good spot. I mean, it needs a few more hunts this year for sure, yep. on like on good weather days. But mm-hmm. tomorrow ought to be good. Um, you know, that's that front push through, and it's still kind of a little bit messy this morning. And uh, tomorrow it's going to be high pressure. It's like thirty two point thirty point two inches or thirty point zero two, I think it is. Uh, barometric pressure, which you know, it's kind of one of those things. Maybe it affects it. Maybe it doesn't. Um, just me anecdotally, it kind of seems like it does. And I think, I think that. Dr. Chamberlain had a study that was kind of suggesting that too. So that's got me pretty excited. Going to go to a spot where last time we were there, we heard a whole bunch of turkeys. Uh, we're we're going to see. We're going to see if there's any turkeys left from that last time. We're, we're going to see. Yep. But, uh, we will. But other than that, dude, I've got, I've got nothing else. I'm, I'm just excited. It'll be a fun episode, guys. I'd love to hear y'all's feedback. And also, like Andrew wanted me to mention earlier, guys, y'all been leaving us some reviews, and mm, we absolutely yep. appreciate y'all leaving just five-star reviews on iTunes. Y'all been awesome. But we haven't had any new written reviews in quite a while. Y'all been leaving reviews, and that's great, but no written reviews. And we really would appreciate if you guys, if you're listening on iTunes, which about 84% of you guys are, if you'd go over on iTunes, not only leave us a five-star review, but also leave us a written review, kind of what you like about the show, what you're excited for, especially for later on this year. Um, and we'd love to start kind of reading out some of those new reviews uh, on the show uh, once y'all start posting them. So, guys. Really would appreciate y'all doing that. Also, appreciate everybody's support going over and checking out the Southern Waters Fishing Podcast. 
Uh, we are just at uh, just now hitting like that one month time frame. The show's been up and live, and currently go to iTunes. It is the fourth show on iTunes when you search fishing. Nice. Check that out. It was number six for a while. Now it's up to number four, which hey, is super baby. exciting. So uh, greatly appreciate everybody that's uh, been checking out the Southern Waters Fishing Podcast. Uh, of course, uh, just, you know if you are listening to the show, uh, make sure you share it with a buddy and share it with a bunch of buddies. Uh, we greatly appreciate that too. But other than that, Andrew, you got anything else? That's all I got. Share it with a buddy. Uh, leave us a review. We really appreciate it. That's biggest things that you guys can do to help us out. Um, other than that, let's uh, kick it over to some falconry. Awesome. So we'll kick this over right now to our, my interview with Britt Perry from NWTF and talking all things falconry. When you think turkey calls, think of Houndstooth. Houndstooth Game Calls is a company based right here in Alabama, actually based out of Tuscaloosa, and they have been making some of our favorite turkey calls since 2012. Y'all head on over to their website, see what they got. They got a little something for everybody. They have a huge selection of different mouth calls, different cuts, different read configurations. I like to go on there and get five or six different mouth calls and just run them, see which ones I like the most. You know, some days I might like the KB Hen, some days I might like the Ghost Cut. Some situations I might like the Country Girl Call, you know, that I can cut on really hard where on other situations I might like the all pro that I can get a little bit softer on. Bottom line, there's something for everybody and something for every situation and hey, you can get 15% off of your order at Houndstooth Game Calls by using the promo code SOP24 that's SOP24 use that promo code it'll get you a discount and it helps out the podcast. I'm Alex Rodriguez and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Got an interesting topic for you guys this week. Sitting with me here in the booth at the 2022 NWTF convention here in Nashville, Tennessee, is Brittany Perry, the area biologist for Louisiana uh, for National Wild Turkey Federation. Uh, and we're going to talk all things falconry. And you're probably like, why falconry? Like I said the same thing until I met Brittany, and I'm like, mm, this is pretty interesting. So I was like, we got to do a, at least do a bonus episode on this topic. So, Brittany, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Awesome. It's been a good couple of days here. Very busy, but exciting. Well, you say a couple of days, but it's probably been close or almost to a week for you guys. Because I know y'all <laughs> been down here for at least a lot of the staff for NWT has been down here for quite a while. Um, but we're here on the last day, which is Saturday. So, guys, let y'all know if you're listening to the podcast now, at any point, 
if me or Brittany potentially maybe misspeak or uh, I'm not even say you can say slur words or whatever, uh, it's probably because we're a little tired, a little worn down <laughs> after talking to you know just an untold number of people. I know you talked to probably more people than I have, but very in depth, long conversations. So uh, it's definitely weighing on us. But we're excited to have this conversation, which is a topic that I was interested in probably about a year and a half ago, two years ago. I think it was February 2020, if I remember correctly. Uh, I met a gentleman. First name I know was John that was in central Alabama who had a red tail hawk. And we and Andrew are at a local archery range shooting, and he just comes walking by while hunting with his red tail hawk. And it was on his, it was on his arm, on his uh, gauntlet? If it, or no, what's, what's the term here? So you could call it a gauntlet, but mm-hmm. more or less, you just call it a falconry glove. Falconry glove. And it was the most epic thing I've ever seen. First off, this, uh, this red tail hawk. The intensity of this thing was giving me was uh, pretty intimidating, but also as he told us the stories of the, the huntability uh, of these animals is pretty fascinating. And again, you know how you can do this in the United States. So real quick, Brittany, um, can you tell us a little bit about what, what is your background when it came into, you know, falconry, falconry work? Yeah. So I guess in college, I really started learning a lot of about birds and it more started specializing into birds. I worked in the ornithology museum. Then they were like, oh, Brett, do you want to volunteer at the Raptor Center at LSU? So I was like, oh, yeah, totally. Went there, got kind of introduced to the hawks and um, kind of rehabbing them. Okay, fine. I have a wildlife career, kind of uh, walked away from the whole actually rehabbing the birds or working with them uh, up close in person. Then um, about four or so years ago, it occurred to me that falconry is a thing that is still being done today. So I kind of learned about it and now I do it. Yeah, absolutely. So we're we're going to get more details on this because I'm very interested on it because people, I think there's probably a decent amount of listeners who's heard of the term falconry and probably known it's a thing. There's some going to be listeners like, I've never heard of this ever in my entire life. What is your definition of falconry? Okay, so falconry is hunting with a bird of prey. It's not having a bird of prey as a pet. It's not flying it around. It is actually using the bird to take game. Which is one of the most epic things that uh, I think you could do when it comes to this uh, hunting-related topic, uh, especially in the United States, which, again, we'll probably talk about this a little bit more, but, like, the history and the heritage of falconry comes from Europe. Is that correct? Honestly, I'm not sure. Falconry has been a worldwide sport. Um, I know Europe is definitely it's in their culture but you know they do have falconry in asia there is falconry in uh russia and down to africa it's it's all over the world and i am actually ignorant of where it actually be and like, I said, started i said europe and that's probably incorrect i'm sure somebody probably will go out there and google it and correct me on which is perfectly fine but it's interesting because again you're using a bird of prey to go hunt game and do it in a way that, again, is just, for the average hunter, is unconventional, as you could say. Um, it's, it's a different approach, and it's a different intensity level, I see, not only on the training aspect, but, I go, again, how you go about having to get 
license and, and everything that you need to become a true falconer. What is your experience when it comes to uh, birds of prey? Like, what kind of birds of prey have you had? What kind of hawks and falcons have you had? What do you currently have? And then I want to get into how do you how did you actually become a falconer? Because it's something that is not easily accomplished. And it's something that's like you don't sign up one day and the next day, within a week, you have a bird. Yes, it is very intensive in the process and the paperwork, but oh my gosh, it is worth it. So my hawks in the past, I have flown a couple red tail hawks. They're fantastic birds. This year I flew a goshawk. I am currently training an American kestrel. And then I did dabble with a Cooper's hawk for a short amount of time. But unfortunately, it has its own story, but it was a rehab bird <laughs> that I was trying to help out. So with working with all these different birds, of course, we're going to get more details on. But I think a question that a lot of people are wondering is, OK, Falcon, this sounds kind of interesting. What is the process of becoming a falconer and actually getting into falconry? Because it's not an easy path. And I want to kind of explain it with listeners. Again, you're not going out just buying a bird and then instantly be able to do all this kind of stuff. That That is very correct. In fact, mo- like whenever you start off in falconry, you got to trap your own bird. There's no buying. So there are three levels of falconry. First level is apprentice. Then it's general and then masters. So whenever you are starting out to become an apprentice, you must take a state approved falconry test and you must pass that test then you must find a falconer who has been a falconer for five years within your state that will sponsor you and become responsible for your education and training and approval overall in the end whenever you become a general for two years so it's very important the apprenticeship and finding your the correct sponsor to work with for two years And then also housing a raptor is its own specifications. You have to pass a a raptor uh, housing inspection. So the state will come out to your house and look at your mew, which is what your raptor is going to be housed in and approve it. So, you know, it's really those three things that you need to uh, then get your permit to trap your first bird. Which... One thing, so we had a conversation about this yesterday, and it was a very in-depth conversation because uh, I've been fascinated about it. But one thing I don't think we ever talked about is what entails with this apprenticeship because you have to take this permit or you have to take the course, take this test, you have to pass it, and then you have to go find a sponsor in your state that's been doing it for at least five years to then agree to sponsor you and say, yes, they're going to take responsibility over you and you know some of these decisions uh, as you go through an apprenticeship with them. What entails with an apprenticeship? Yeah. So, you know, that is your relationship with your sponsor. And the sponsor is trying to give you a just a wealth of knowledge to get you out here and keep your bird happy and healthy and ultimately getting you to hunt with your bird and taking game that's the end goal of this so that you can say at the end of the two years like you can do this on your own you know how to keep your bird healthy and you know how to hunt with it 
and then you can become a general and do it um, on your own. And that doesn't always mean your sponsor is with you every single day. You know, that can be a phone call. That could be a couple questions asked and them like coming out with you to hunt to get you started. Um, so, you know, it, it depends on your sponsor, but it, it's good. Absolutely. You're going to want them to help you. Wait, and I guess one thing, because the, the two-year period, some people are probably, that is a extremely long period of time for this kind of responsibility. But then you look at it, it's like, it's there's so much responsibility dealing with a, a bird of prey, uh, as I've come to learn and find out about this, that I guess the whole point of the sponsorship lasting or apprenticeship lasting for two years is to make sure that you're serious about this. Correct. Definitely. It is a commitment. Um, and, you know, two years, that's two hunting seasons. Um, it it goes by really fast. The, you, you are learning so much. You are trying new things. It, it goes by in a blink of an eye. Well, can you maybe looking back at your apprenticeship, first off, how, were, how did you go about contacting? Like once you took the exam and everything, which maybe backtrack a little bit more when it comes to the exam how does someone find that exam based off their state because i guess every state's a slightly different when it comes to how to go about taking that test and studying for that test so you do uh that is all based off of the uh the state's wildlife department so you would go and contact your state's wildlife department you can you can google it online you know and you'll see you have a falconry coordinator that heads that program with your state's hunting program and you contact them they can tell you what to study for but this is where community really you know comes in handy you make friends with these falconers you go to the meets you meet them um and they can help you in what to uh, study for mm-hmm. so that's that's a huge aspect so it's really trying to get into the community of other falconers in your area if you're interested in this and again probably a very small percentage of people listening to this podcast are interested in actually having their own, you know, falcon or hawk. But I think it's something that this is a very interesting conversation because it's another way to hunt that we have access to in in the United States if you're willing to go through the requirements to get to the point of actually having your own bird or birds. Because <laughs> what remind me again, how many birds once you get get through your apprenticeship and you get your general is it your what is it? is it called a general license? What do they call it? General license? General license. So once you get your general license, how many birds are you how many birds or bird are you allowed at that point and then so on? So you get three whenever you're a general. And then you can have five whenever you're a master. And that was so that's the third. So it's apprentice, uh, general, and then master. Now what takes you to get to a master? Um ooh. Eight years, I believe, or is it ten years? We're not going to talk about this. <laughs> it's a long time. It's a long time before you ever, before you get to that. Um, but I want to bring it back down to the aspects of apprenticeship. So you take your exam, you go online, you find for your state. You're curious with this. You take your exam. I guess anyone could take the exam just to see what they think about it, and then you can make a decision. Oh, maybe I do want to go through with this. Maybe I don't. But I guess you can take an exam just to take an exam if you wanted to. You take the exam, you pass, and then you start working on trying to find a sponsor. What is that communication level like when it comes to like networking and finding somebody that potentially is willing to take you under their wing and, and work with you through this whole program to get you to that point? So, I kind of suggest you do the, uh, the opposite of what you just said. Find a sponsor first who can help you 
uh, study for the material and then go uh, take the test. But, you know, taking the test first is a good way to show that you are serious, which leads me to the next part of getting to know actually falconers in your area because there's many people that have this view of falconry it's kind of like a romantic like unrealistic view of you know having like a hawk that's like their spirit animal you know hang out with them that is not what falconry is uh, and so for you to get out there and go meet the falconers and say like hey I want to know what falconry really is. Please take me out on a hunt. Please let me, you know, assist you and see what it is. They love that. They're like, okay, come with me. And if you can hang, you can hang. It's, it is hunting with a bird. And, you know, it's, it's great fun. It's great fun. But that bird is not your spirit animal. There's, there is a difference. <laughs> spirit animal. Hmm. Say getting distracted with that just a little <laughs> bit. The, so the I ki- just mean the people oh, that I know, are I, like I know, oh, I know the people. That's why that's why I'm getting distracted because I'm, I'm like, yeah, those people definitely don't need one of those. Oh like, no, as, there's a type that will have an idea of what falconry is, yep. and you're like, oh no. <laughs> uh, so getting to again, no other falconers go out and experience this, and make sure that you're serious about like, hey, you know, I am curious more about learning more. I want to take the exam, the whole nine yards. Can you walk me through a little bit of like that sponsorship and what that actually looked like for you? I mean, you kind of mentioned like, you know, it's not like you're always working with, you know, your sponsor, you know, 24 seven, but like, what is that communication level like? What is it like of actually you going into the field with the bird, but also in the home or in, you know, at the, you know, with the mew, which is again, where the birds house, what does that look like during the sponsorship? Like, what are some of those responsibilities that are put onto, you know, that apprentice? So I guess how I found my sponsor, I I went onto Facebook of all things and I searched Texas Falconry. Just thinking like, you know, it's a thing and there's probably a group. Guess what? There was. So I, you know, applied to be in this group, got onto it, and then I made a post and I was just like hi I'm Brittany and saying I was in the Houston area wanted to meet up with some falconers um really learn more about it and I had this girl message me she's like oh I'm in there and I go oh great let's go meet up at Starbucks and her name was Aisha Rimsberg she's now like one of my best friends and I swear we sat at that Starbucks and nerded out about falconry and birds for uh, it could have been like four or something hours before we both had to really go and that just kind of kicked it off and I was, I was in so that was the aha moment for you and then kind of getting to the actual point of so she was your sponsor correct yes so what does that relationship look like as that a sponsor, you know, that sponsor to apprentice during that two year period? Again, you're going over to her place and actually working with some of the birds. I mean, is it some written material? Is it just pretty much all hands on when it comes to the different aspects of the life cycle? So there's many great books on falconry and how to's in literature, but I'm a very hands on person and I do have the added advantage that I am a wildlife biologist and I 
did specialize in birds. So a lot of this was very like been there, done that. Um, but you know, that, that sponsor, uh, your sponsor is there to help you. Like for example, whenever I made my hawk trap to trap my first hawk, my sponsor was there. My sponsor was out there helping me trap my bird. We were locating them and it, we just, we had so much fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, if you love your sponsor, which most people do because you're not going to get sponsored by someone who dislikes you or, you know, you choose somebody you don't want to learn from, it's, it's just a great time. So, and just for clarification, though, you do not get your first bird until after you've gone through that whole apprenticeship, correct? Correct. Absolutely. You are legally not allowed to have a bird until you have your permit. So the question I have, and again, this is really far jumping ahead, but I'll bring you back in just a second, is the lifestyle with, you know, a bird of prey, you know, at your residency. And what I mean by this is there's a ton of responsibility, I'm sure, with this. Like, that's one reason why you got to go through a two-year apprenticeship is there's a ton of responsibility dealing with this. But what is, what is like, the lifestyle change or what happens? Like, what, what kind of changes take place when you, have, when you start to have a, uh, a bird of prey compared to say like you had a dog or cat like what is the difference because some people are like oh you know it's like a, a pet so you know I, I, they have an idea of what runs through his minds but like what does that look like for a falconer so i would say the biggest change and burden happens at the beginning because you do have to make those changes and birds they're very tough in some ways but they're fragile in others so let's say this bird is on the inside well, you actually can't cook with any nonstick coating. That kills a bird instantly. And you would have never thought about that, you know, if you had like a dog or cat inside. So you just have to be aware of these smaller things, you know, go Whoa. get you a good cast iron. <laughs> now we're talking. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. So I did not know but, that. So, so, so cooking with a nonstick pan, it gives off some kind of... Yeah, it, it, there's a chemical that will come off when it reaches a certain temperature. Yeah. And birds are very very sensitive to it, yeah. and they, they will die instantly. And there's actually long-term studies being done mm. on, like, you know, mammals, humans, that shows that it kind of affects us, which is a whole other topic, but just take my word on it. So that's part of the lifestyle change. What, what about when it comes to, like, the responsibility of care? Because the thing is, like, a dog or cat, if you go out of town – most people understand how to take care of a dog or cat. If you had a red-tailed hawk or kestrel or your goshawk, that's, you know, that's a little <laughs> bit different. I'm like, I don't know how to handle this. So what is that like? Is Like right now, of course, you're, you're here and your hawks aren't here and your kestrel's not here. So what is that like when it comes like, hey, I'm going to be out of town. I'm trying to do a trip. What happens? Well, that's when knowing your neighbors really well comes in handy. Uh, for example, I flew out of Houston. Well, I have a couple of good friends that are falconers in Houston, so they are watching my birds. Um, It it definitely does take somebody with experience Mm -hmm. to uh, care for your birds, but uh, it can can be done. So it's really pretty much, that would be more of a, um, how do you, how would you put, how would I put this? It's more of a relationship based around also who else could potentially help you in a situation 
where you're going to be at out of town, and you can have somebody that has your back, but also has at least some understanding and training uh, that you probably help them with when it comes to feeding and, and, and maintenance and care while you're gone. Yeah, and, you know, it it does pay to, you know, be have that experience and having someone watch it who knows what they're doing. But the bird, if you once you have them trained, they're actually not very unruly, like a person with, you know, that you trust and you kind of give them like, hey, you know, this is this, this is this, just feed it once a day. It can be done, but it just puts your mind at ease, like at an emergency situation to rather have it with the falconer. So... You know, how, let me ask how tight knit because I want to say in this the whole like culture behind falconry and also the lifestyle, and then we're gonna get back to more specifics. How tight knit are a lot of these falconry groups and like organizations? Or in okay, hold on, it's, I'll let you answer that one first. <laughs> this about again, how tight knit are a lot of these falconers? So, you know, like any I guess really niche sports. We are super nice, like tight knit. Uh, I made some of my best friends through falconry. I mean, we go on trips together. We'll go to Abilene and Lubbock. I went to Oklahoma this year. Now I have best friends out in Idaho that I go visit and fly birds with. And it's just amazing that you, you know, all these very eclectic people coming together and y'all love the same thing. Yeah, it's like that commonality between people, no matter <laughs> their background or anything else, that's the one commonality, which is, it, it's interesting. Now, getting to the second part of this question, I want to ask, what kind of organizations in it do we have in the United States built around falconry or in falconers? Yeah, so we, most states do have their own uh, falconry club, and then that's umbrella of our national club, which is called NAFA, and NAFA is a great organization that kind of uh, goes into saving our birds. They do do some um, research, and then we also make sure that we are lobbying for the falconer's rights within the U.S. and changing policies and making sure all that's great. You know, it's it's a very cool club. So also, when it comes to the, the lifestyle of a, of a falconer, what else changes? Of course, you have the responsibility and everything, but like, this th- see, I'm just getting into like the <laughs> bird dog aspect, okay? Like now I have a bird dog, like we gotta actively go out and hunt and train. What does that look like from a falconer's perspective? Again, once you have your general license and everything else, what does that lifestyle appear to be? Okay, so like one aspect, I have my own freezer for this bird's food. You know, uh, it's full of rats and chicken and rabbits and squirrels. It has its own storage. Then, you know, you need to treat these birds like athletes. Well, an athlete isn't going to win if it is sitting around and going hunting maybe only once every two weeks you want this bird to be fit so you go out and you fly your bird keep it strong uh even if you're not hunting you're gonna want to get it out and get it a little bit of exercise um so your lifestyle does change in that aspect 
Um, but I think it changes for the better. I can see also the training aspect. And again, you're flying your bird. Just like, again, me, like running my dog. Like we're going out there into the field and covering a couple of miles and letting her, you know, I think on adult now this is totally different on the birds so i'm curious here like when it comes to, like the, the athletic aspect of you know working out you know the the bird itself like with a dog our buddy nick adair from the gun dog itself podcast he talks about i think statistically or on average for every mile you walk that dog should run between three to four uh if it's truly covering some ground and kind of doing its thing um and i'm curious when it comes to so you can kind of figure out you know what that sweet spot is for that athletic ability of that dog when you go out there so you know do a three mile hike um you know should be doing you know roughly 12 to 15 miles for that dog which is which is great with them covering a ton of ground with the hawk when it comes to like or, or falcon yeah hawks and falcons which we're gonna get into that in just a second uh the, the differences between them um is there any is there any uh, detailed behind truly what is a workout for these birds like when you're going out there and you're working that bird what what does that consist of is it just flying is it just more mental training what does that consist so after you've gone through the training process and you're just exercising your birds you know you can either you can bring them out like on a walk on the woods, but there are training tools that you can use. So, for example, some people use drones and the bird is trained to go chase the drone. You also have these pulley systems where the bird will have a, uh, you know, a lure, a piece of meat, the training tool that you want to use for the bird to chase after. And you hit the pulley system and it'll drag it super far and the bird has to chase it. Um, which kind of simulates a hunt. Then also there are weighted leashes that you'll connect to the bird and then ask the bird to fly up to a certain height. And that weighted leash will kind of, you know, make it a little bit strenuous for them. But that will build up muscles really fast. So again, just like an athlete, you're doing different things to kind of train them not only mentally be prepared for different situations, but also physically, you know, have that strength. Because again, I get... Well, no, I won't, I won't go there when it comes to training dogs because it's not, it's not the same. But definitely being in physical shape to be able to take down, especially when you're talking game here. Like, we're not just flying a bird just to go fly a bird. We're talking about, like, it's got to be in killing shape, to be honest, and then be able to take care of his game depending on what you're, you know, targeting for. So step back just a little bit. I want to okay. step back just a little bit because so, I'm curious the lifestyle aspect. But when it comes to hawks and falcons, because there's a difference between it, can you describe what the difference or explain what the difference is between the two? Yeah, so in a falconry aspect, the differences between, in general, a hawk and a falcon is kind of their hunting style. So falcons are going to use kind of the finesse and swoop of the sky and their momentum to go ahead and catch their prey, where a hawk is going to be more straightforward and use the crushing power in their feet. So, yes, there's two different styles of hunting, which depending on what game you're hunting for, there might be one species that's going to be better for you than the other based off, again, whether you're hunting something that's on the ground, like, again, rabbits or or squirrels, I guess, again, that mammal. Um, or if you're going to be hunting avian, you know, prey, which could be your ducks or your snipe, which we've talked a ton about the last day or two, uh, woodcock, quail, whatever, 
you know, a falcon may be better for that aspect, and a hawk, you know, potentially could be better for the the more mammals. Um, at least that's my outlook on it. So I don't know if that's correct or not. Yeah, and now we're really getting into what I love to nerd out about. It's just the different hunting styles. Each bird is really just geared toward their prey. And, you know, you can use the landscape around you to, like, hunt and just make it all come together. So, you know, I I just nerd out about this. Real quick before we totally nerd, because mm-hmm. it's, it's pretty interesting. Can you talk about what are some of the species? Because we haven't talked about the trapping aspect or anything like that of like how you go about obtaining, you know, said hawk or falcon, whatever you're using. By the way, what is a kestrel classified as? Oh, so a kestrel is North American's smallest falcon. So it's in the falcon. So it's a falcon. Okay, cool. Well, we're going to get to that because you have a kestrel, which is the. I thought they were bigger than what it was. And when you showed me how small it was, I was like, oh, my gosh, that thing's a little killing machine, you know, for, <laughs> for its size. Um, but we'll talk about how you, of course, go once you get your general license and everything, how you go about you would go about trapping said, you know, bird of prey or whatever you're going to be targeting for. But what are the different species of hawks and falcons are there in North America that you see falconers readily use? So there are a couple species that are like, tried and true that you are going to want to get with they are great for falconry i don't understand why people try to use all these other ones but (laughs) we we have the red tail hawk we have peregrine falcons then there's the goshawk there are people that like to fly the smaller occipiters which is going to be the coopers and the sharp shin hawk and then we have the American Kestrel and the Merlin. And a Merlin's a falcon. And, the, now, and those are probably the most popular uh, falconry birds that you can use that are native to North America. So, okay, interesting. So re- and it all comes down to like what kind of styling are you going to be doing your hunting based around, correct? Style and where, like where do you live? What is there to hunt? You know, you don't want to have a peregrine falcon and say like, yeah, I got this falcon and we're going to go hunt squirrels in the woods. That is just not going to happen. That is not how the peregrine is made. It's going to want nothing to do with that. And so what? You have this bird and then you have this habitat. And guess what? They don't go together. Yeah, and that's, I guess, when you have more of an advantage. Again, if you're going to be in the timber, that sheer power of like a hawk or a red tail could outweigh you know the the potential benefits for it to be able to use that sheer force and momentum as it comes out of you know the sky really to knock out whatever that prey is so again that wouldn't be the best use of a of its hunting style for a squirrel be talking to a falcon there not at all i mean that would be laughable So, so to talk a little bit more about it, so we kind of talked about the different species. I do maybe this is the time that we can talk about the trapping aspect. Some people are wondering, like, you can, so you can trap a, a wild animal and then turn it into a, a, a hunting or killing. Well, actually, they're already killing machine. Turn it into a not tame, not domestic, but a, a a animal that you can handle and hunt with. What is the legality behind that? Like, what does your license allow you to do when it comes to, you know, the general license to be able to allow you to go out and actively trap for a bird for you to be able to train with? So we have the Migratory Bird Treaty Act in North America. Uh, It says you cannot kill or harass, you know, native birds in North, North America. So 
in order to, I guess, like, trap your bird and handle these birds, you have to get a permit. Well, this is what your falconry license is. It allows you to kind of bypass the Migratory Bird Act for falconry purposes. So, get your general license. So, we're getting to that point. When you get your general license, you can go out and actively trap. Well, apprentice license. Or, so, apprentice, okay. Yes, yes, because they, they are trapping your own first bird, and it's going to be wild. Mm-hmm. So, as you go through with this and, and you know you're you're trapping your bird what does that consist of as in like how do you, how does that go about working you know people i'm like okay how would you like so we had a conversation yesterday and tyler was in here our buddy tyler and he came up with his own way oh this is how i would do it and it was kind of i'll be honest kind of laughable i was like i don't know about that which had to deal with you know, a post hole digger a um some kind of spring metal trap. i don't know what kind of, he was trying to use like a like a like a duke trap <laughs> Andrew's over here sitting here next to us too and uh anyways it was not the the greatest way i thought about but could you explain like what is a what is a uh falconer's trap look like when it comes to trying to attain said hawk so there are different trapping methods for sure and sometimes you want to get like a certain species some traps work better than others but I would say 80% of the birds you want to catch, you can use a BC trap. So what a BC trap is, is picture a wire mesh cage. Well, you're going to go ahead and stick a live prey animal into there. And I'm thinking like, you know, by cage, it's like a one foot by one foot. It's going to have a little bit of weight on it. You're going to stick the rat in there. And then on the outside of this wire mesh are going to be little nooses. So you kind of go around, let's say we're trying to find a red tail hawk. Well, red tail hawks, they like to hang out like in fields, maybe at the top of a tree, but you know what's also like super easy? Go just find them on power poles. You kind of watch it, you see he's hunting. Okay, if you put this trap in the field, like within like a football field kind of view of this guy, I promise you, in five minutes or so, the bird's going to be on the trap. They have amazing vision. It's that easy. Which we got to preference something and explain. You're not just trapping any, say, red tail hawk. It's got to be a juvenile red tail hawk. If we're talking about just that, but for any of these birds, it has to be a juvenile. Yes, yes. So we didn't talk about that. The hawk that you trap, there are rules and it has to be less than a year old, but old enough to be out of the nest and flying on its own. And we do that because an adult bird is already part of the breeding population, but a bird that's under a year old, it hasn't uh, bonded or paired or mated yet. And 80% of them die their first winter anyway. They don't make it past their first uh year of life and that's just kind of birds in general they have a high death rate but then after that they tend to live so you know trapping that bird has no effect on their population and not to get too much into the weeds of this what tells you that a bird is juvenile compared to what a mature breeding say red tail hawk would look like so 
when birds get their first set of feathers, so they're, you know, little fluff balls in the nest, but now they're going to grow their first uh, set of feathers. That is their juvenile plumage. Now their juvenile plumage, they're going to keep until their first spring, which they're going to go through the molt. And after that, they're going to get their adult plumage. And so their juvenile plumage and their adult plumage are going to look different. So you can take a pair of binoculars and you, let's say it is a red tail hawk you're looking for. So a red tail hawk, the juvenile plumage, their tail is going to be brown with stripes. An adult red tail hawk is going to have a red tail. So you you kind of know what you're going for and you know the species so you learn those kind of uh color differentiations absolutely so that's how you go about you know locating and, and trapping one and kind of how that would entail now i am i know you and me had a very long conversation about this previously so we'll have to figure out a way to shorten it down a little bit but can you explain your thought and premise after doing this for, I think, four years now. Is that right? Yeah, four going on five. Four going on five years. As soon as, how soon after trapping whatever species you're going to trap, are you actively hunting with it? Okay, so from you trapping it to the first day you go hunting, you do it right, it's about a month. It's that fast. So roughly within a month or so, if you again, if you do it right and have the experience and everything, you could be actively hunting with this. What kind of bird, Andrew? Real quick, what kind of bird dog do you think you could, from the time you get it home to the time you're actually hunting it, without any previous experience, you think you could hunt with that? A bird dog? A bird dog? Yeah, a pointer. Zero. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I don't know. I mean, if you bought like a started dog or something, maybe that'd be but. cheating a little bit. Actually, I don't know. These are technically started birds. I mean, they're not. Yeah, I mean, they're started. The they're started. School they're, of hard knocks. They, 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 I was gonna they, say they're killing. They're out there. They're, born they're with providing it. for their self. That's You're just training them to hunt with you yeah. and doing what they already know. Nice try on the analogy, Jake. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I was trying to be, trying to be smooth. With You're it. trying to be slick. I, I try to bring it trying back to down. Be I'm trying to bring it back down to uh, bird dogs, but I guess I guess that doesn't work out very well. Bird dogs. And hey, there <laughs> is a amazing aspect of falconry that uses bird dogs. It's upland game. You uh, you use. Uh, I guess goshawks would be the most popular in the situation, but you have your setters or your pointers go ahead and fine quail or mm-hmm. and they you go ahead and flush it and your bird goes and grabs it it's it's amazing it's this incredible thing to watch wow which that's what i want to get to is the actual the huntability of these birds based off what you're going to be going for now for you as a falconer what game species do you target the most so in the past years it has been squirrels i live in the southeast we have amazing squirrel habitat and you know you hunt what you have (laughs) so right now i have a goshawk um i did start my job with national wild turkey a couple months ago and i had to relocate um so i really didn't have my feet under myself for this falconry season but i hope to do more woodcock hunting with my goshawk Um, we also went out and tried to get a couple ducks this season but I mean, I'm sure you're aware. It was so hot this year. The ducks just weren't pushed down south. So I had to go to West Texas, made a couple trips there, and into Oklahoma. So hopefully it will be better next season. This 
this season was just such a wash in general. But I still had fun. Well, I wanted to kind of give it to the, the huntability aspect of them and the again the different species. Again, we're talking when you're talking falcons, the hawks, and how again we talked earlier, one may be more tuned to hunt say squirrels and rabbits versus the others like hey for pheasants quail woodcock snipe it's a way better option which would be like say you know some of the different falcons and actually i guess your goshawk too potentially as well but definitely some of the falcons could play a bigger advantage say if you're doing a snipe hunt like andrew which mm-hmm. yeah probably whenever this episode comes out we've already talked yeah, about, we've that, already that, talked that, about that, snipe that, hunt. the snipe hunt but like, like where you're, you're actively flushing something and that hawk that that falcon is already up there at altitude and when it flushes it just comes straight down and smacks that snipe out of the sky and that's how it works. Takes it out. <laughs> <laughs> it is that amazing. <laughs> and you were telling me earlier, uh, not to get too sidetracked, that there is a, a group of falconers that get together in Arkansas and do like a big snipe hunt with a bunch of different falcons. And I guess some of those people might be running hawks too, but you know that that's something that's kind of interesting on some of the, the group gathered hunts, which. I gotta ask, because listeners are probably wondering, can you run multiple hawks or falcons at one time? No, that would be a <laughs> that'd be a no, no. They uh, they definitely are territorial. Um, that does not work out. Now there is this one other species of hawks. They're super cool. They're native to the Southwest U.S. They're called Harris hawks. It's one of the only species that these hawks form family groups and they hunt together it's so you'll have so a, a pack of like five hawks they're social they're yes. socially hunting oh wow it is like imagine Wolf a pack of wolves in the sky yes it is and people will take their uh harris hawks and they fly them together some people might have and it's called a cast and have like three harris hawks and go out there so that is a very uh, like specialized group of hawks. But most hawks, they don't tolerate that. They don't want any other hawk in their area. They get territorial. They don't want them on their game. It it'd be not good. So talk. Let's talk about especially with your experience hunting squirrels. You know, small game hunting. That's what we're doing when it comes to the, the falconry aspect. Small game, and then also some upland hunting, you know, yes. upland species, and then also and ducks wa- and waterfowl, which I was going to yes. get to, which is pretty epic. Which we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Um, with your experience hunting squirrels, that was with starting out with your red tail, correct? Correct. And then your second bird was the. It was um. So I've had two incredible red tails. Um, and then my goshawk has taken squirrels, but man, those red tails were crushing them. My goshawk's more on the smaller side, so he can only handle what he can handle. Yeah, well, and that's what they're designed <laughs> with. Like you'll be deer hunting all the time, and all of a sudden you just have a you got squirrels coming around, and you know they're all ch- they'll chattering back and forth because there's a red tail out there. And I've I've sat there and stand a couple times and seen a red tail hawk come through the canopy and grab a squirrel off the trunk that was a pinned up against it oh, yeah. and then hit the ground with it and that was it there was <laughs> nothing else so uh what is the hunting style when it comes to like if you're hunting squirrels i mean is the is the bird is the hawk say we're talking hawk here actively flying is it you know perched on you know your your glove what is that like when you're actually actively hunting so you know this is another cool thing about falconry there's different styles and you do different things for different games so while 
you know, someone might be out in the field, they hunt the bird from their fist. Well, squirrel hunting, what's what's that going to do? Nothing. So you have you train your bird to go up to the top of these trees and while you walk through the forest trying to flush these squirrels and find them your bird is following from the top of these trees paying attention to what you do and you know ready and spring loaded for the squirrel flush <laughs> so you've trained the bird to be able to do that explain walk us through like a, a an, an accurate hunt and by the way I smiled and I kind of laughed earlier I think I had it edit that out get that edited but you said something yesterday which i'm gonna bring up in just a little bit after we talked about the hunt which i thought was hilarious which andrew you're gonna get a kick out of this in just a second but when it comes to actively hunting talk about like the flush what's the, the style you have the bird up in the heat it's it's arrow it's up there hopping around tree to tree or flying what is it like when you're actually actively hunting and walk us through like a typical hunt when you're successful so typical hunt you know you'll have the bird following you it's the falconry term is called following on is the style so the birds following on from a height in the trees you know a good squirrel hawk is going to keep high they're not going to stay by you they're going to go to the top of the trees and follow because then they have the best advantage to go down um i hunt in a lot of hardwood forests down in the south we have a lot of vines on our trees now these vines will go ahead and connect kind of to branches and the tops of the trees so you can go and find these vines on the trunks and grab them and start to shake them well you know whenever you have that hawk out there the squirrels know a squirrel they are gonna freeze they're gonna hide they're gonna glue themselves to those branches and to the uh maybe like on the side of the tree that you're not walking on they are gonna be hidden because they know that hawk is out there maybe like a friend called and now they're all you know hiding so you have to actively participate in this hunt to even get these squirrels to flush and get them moving so that the hawk can even have a chance so i use these vines they are connected to the top of the trees i'll grab them i'll pull in the vines to make the uh the branches of the trees to start moving and that will hopefully scare the squirrels out of their position and they'll make a break for it and then say so say that happens <laughs> you get one that makes a break for it what what then happens or is, is there anything that's being verbal is there any verbal <laughs> communication between you and the hawk for anything like that like what what happens after that flush oh man there is so traditionally in falconry whenever you flush game you yell ho 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 now i thought that was the silliest thing whenever i first started but now i'm out in the woods screaming ho 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 at the top of my lungs <laughs> like i own it <laughs> so you know this the squirrel breaks if you see the squirrel you yell ho 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 and that bird comes in because it knows those words it's different from any other cue you're giving it it knows that there is game flushing it will try and find it which you know if the if the squirrel is moving it, it's it's gone but then you have the active chase and this is why i love squirrel hunting in particular it's not like a rabbit a rabbit it it you know it's kind of like a one and done squirrel oh man 
it is just a chess match up there. You're working the ground. You're taking that squirrel and you're pushing it up into the tree. It's going from tree to tree. You're following it on the ground, pursuing it, making sure and cutting off its uh, escape to the ground while the bird kind of uh, presses it from the top. And you are waiting for that one time the squirrel might be looking at you or makes a mistake. Maybe it goes out onto some thinner limbs and the bird goes, oh, I can crash through that. And you'll have the bird come down like a rocket and crash through the brush and grab that squirrel and bring it to the ground. It's amazing. Or, you know, you might have the squirrel and it's trying to make its way to the ground and you run up on it and scare it. And that split second where it was like, oh, no, a person, and it turns around, guess what's behind it? Talons. Talons. <laughs> yes, that red tail ripping it off of the trunk of the tree and bringing it down. What is the origin of ho-ho-ho? How, so, like, how did that get in there? <laughs> so I was verbally told this. I don't think I, I've uh, read it, but they said that it's short for tally-ho. Huh. Yeah. It's like a British thing or something. Which makes sense, right? Yeah, British falconry. European, yeah. 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 Interesting. Have you ever like ran into like a deer hunter or something out in the woods who just like watched you running around yelling, oh, no, not yet, not yet. <laughs> she hasn't been to Alabama yet, so. <laughs> you see a person running through the woods like, oh, <laughs> Yep. So, so the, the interesting thing I think some people are, are coming to find out is like this bird part of this training which we haven't touched on a whole bunch of the training really any of the training aspects but is you are teaching this bird verbal cues that means different things and then doing it in a short window of time like you're talking about like potentially trapping a bird and within 30 days if not maybe that's a touch longer actively hunting with it and it already knows these verbal cues yes Pretty much, yes. And what experience reinforces those cues, for sure. But, you know, you give the bird the basics and you get out there hunting. Because you never want your bird to lose that ability to hunt or get used to that, oh, I'm feeding you kind of lifestyle. You you want them to uh, hunt for you. What is your thoughts on actively hunting uh, and doing falconry inside urban areas for squirrels? Ooh. So... Maybe if you have like a new bird that just needs an easy win and you're trying to reinforce, you know, your partnership and your role in that partnership with an easy kill. Okay, fine. If you have, you know, your your friend's property or neighborhood, but really that is that is not a good look. On the falconry community, you don't want to be killing squirrels like in a super public place and, you know, give people a bad rap because this this is hunting. Uh, also, it's very easy to do that. You go out and try to kill a squirrel that's wild and is used to trying to evade predators. That's a challenge. That's something you can definitely be proud of. So the squirrel aspect, again, just from squirrel hunting, I find very interesting. And also, Yumi talked about this a little bit of how you could, I think you said you know people that do this, implement a, say, a squirrel dog like a feist when actively hunting to go out and find and search that, you know, for that squirrel and have that squirrel pinned up in the tree 
and then potentially, you know, have the hawk already up there and they kind of work together with the dog to find, locate, and then send the hawk in to try to, you know, make the kill. Yeah, there's so many uh, ways to put dogs on your team. And we kind of touched on that with the upland hunting, but it works so well with squirrel hunting too because those dogs are going to be working the ground, following the squirrel, you know, distracting it, barking from the ground and keeping up with it. Maybe, you know better than you can um and the birds learn that they they'll follow the dogs sometimes hunting with kevin murphy with in the hawk yeah dude one, one, of our, one of our buddies kevin murphy from kentucky huge small game hunter actually he's as steven Rennell from meteor says he is the what was it what's he giving world's the, greatest world's small greatest game small game hunter, hunter. yeah and he's got some. He's got some great squirrel dogs, and that would be an interesting combination between the hawk and, and some squir- some quality squirrel dogs. Yep, old oh, Butchie, old oh, Butchie Bad Toes, Butchie and Bad Brownie. <laughs> yeah, because you have some interesting names for your hawks or and falcons, but um, yeah, Kevin definitely goes all in on the uh, on the dog names. Uh, real quick, what are your at your goshawk and your Keshel that you have now? What are their names? So my uh, my goshawk's name is Dogwood, and then the Kestrel. Don't don't judge me. She doesn't have a name yet. I've had her for about a month, but she needs to prove to me to catch game first before I name her. Yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, but I'll- she she's on her way. When I get home from this, we're hunting. And just real quick, just while we're talking about that, so Kestrels are really small bird of prey. Like, I, I, I knew I knew the name of a Kestrel. I kind of knew what they looked like, but I didn't realize how small they were because I've seen photos of them flying. Like, you can't tell from an image of something flying with a close-up, you know, high-quality image, like how big this bird is. They're not big at all. Like, they're shorter than your phone, right? Kind of? Yeah, they're about the size of a, an iPhone. Like, as in, like... Six-inch high... Yeah. So, what were you? What would you be hunting with with a kestrel compared to like the goshawk, which is considerably larger? So, I call my kestrel. She's she's a candy shop bird. She's just for fun. Like mm. she's on the side. She's super fun, and she is going to be active during the non-hunting season. So you have the hunting season where you have like the small game. You have ducks. You have upland game, and then those hunting seasons close. Well, now you're in the spring. What are you going to hunt? You, you can't hunt native birds. So what we have are European starlings and house sparrows. So those are invasive birds from Europe. They're not protected by our Migratory Bird Act. Free game. So I am training my falcon to do something called car hawking. And that's when you teach your bird to fly out of your car and fly onto these invasive birds and catch them. It's called a, uh, we call it a falcon drive-by. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, suppo- this is my first Kestrel, but it's super fun. And it's something you can do with like your friends. It's low maintenance and you just drive around town. You want to hit up Walmart or Sonic. You see the little birds on the side. <laughs> Yeah. All right, yeah, we're going, going to get some fast food. Let's, let's just send the caster out there, whatever, yeah. whatever her name is going to be. Um, that's super interesting. But, again, that's what they specialize in is, is, is catching those smaller birds, um, which actually considerable. How big is a sterling or a starling um, size-wise compared to uh, her, the kestrel? 
Um, it is maybe only slightly smaller. So they're taking out something that's almost their same size. Yes, it's a it's a mighty bird. <laughs> that's pretty crazy. That's awesome. Um, I, I want to talk also about waterfowl hunting with with a bird of prey because yes. I didn't think about that. I think when you mentioned it to me, I was like, hmm, really? And you kind of went more details, which I'm sure we're going to talk about just now, in now, now. But there's a lot of strategy if you are going to hunt waterfowl. First of all, having the right bird for it size-wise and also, you know, it, it makes sure you can get the job done, but also the right situation and location that makes sense because it's not like you're just throwing some decoy spreads out on some river or lake and you're, you know, you're hunting with whatever hawk or falcon you decide to take so what is it like to waterfowl hunt or hunt waterfowl with your birds well it's incredible it's super rewarding when you get those ducks but uh it's like you're saying it's all about the setup so a friend of mine told me that your duck is either caught or lost 90 percent of the time in just the setup like that's how important it is judging the wind the best way to approach you know not being seen on the approach and the flush again there's a lot of strategy with the setup and everything else on the approach but what, what kind of body of water can you hunt ducks actively over with a bird of prey yes and- so for like almost every waterfowl situation you want a smaller body of water and you want open area around that body of water so the game is you need to get these ducks off of this small body of water and you don't want them to escape anywhere. So this is, if it's a larger body of water, guess what? Those ducks just aren't going to flush. They're going to be like, oh, you're over there. Well, we're going to swim, you know, like 40 yards this way and that's going to be it. So you want a smaller body of water so you can actually get the ducks up and flying across that land also i guess you can mention it's i now understand this but some other people at first i didn't understand like okay why don't i just throw a decoy spray out and just hunt them like that their attack method especially talking the falcons here is hit and drive straight through to the ground and if there's water there i don't think those birds swim very well so it's like you have to have the land to pin that bird to pin that duck between uh with the attack correct yeah, it's um, very important because you want to get those ducks flushed off of the uh, water. And let's say you're flying a large falcon, a peregrine. You have it a couple hundred feet above you. And let's say there is a forest um, 30 yards or something away from your small body of water. Guess where those ducks are going to? They're going to head to the forest. And that open space is just not enough uh you know space and distance for that peregrine to have a great dive at these ducks those ducks are going to go into the trees and that's going to break up the swoop and the peregrine's going to lose sight of them and it's not going to be able to dive through the trees so the setup is what works so i guess it makes a lot of sense if you think about it like almost like pond hopping and, and jump like what you would call jump shooting ducks on small part like cattle ponds in an area with a ton of pasture around it where there's no trees for them to get necessarily the cover and plenty of open area for that you know falcon to be able to catch that duck yes so let me um kind of paint a scenario for you like a typical falcon hunt on a uh, on a duck pond so you have a smaller duck pond and let's say it's in a cattle field 
So you don't have trees around. This is the perfect little pond. In fact, the pond has what somewhat of a levee around it. So we can approach it and not be seen from like one side of the pond. Okay. We are a couple yards away from the pond or, you know, several like a football field away or so. We put the falcon up. The falcon starts uh, flying higher and higher and higher. Um, and the falcon will follow us from a couple hundred feet above us. Well, ducks aren't dumb. Ducks are incredibly smart, just like squirrels. And just like side tangent, falconry, and I'm sure hunting in general, just makes you respect your prey so much. So anyway, you have this falcon flying up. The ducks are going to see it. So the ducks are going to be like, oh, God, it's a falcon. Well, we're safe on the water because a falcon is not going to hit a duck on the water because, as you said, what are they going to do? So ducks are like, yeah, we're going to just stay on this pond. No flying for us. Great. That's what we want. So now you are approaching the pond where the ducks can't see you. And you wait till your falcon is in position. And that falcon's going to be checking on you the whole time. And you might signal to it, like, hey, get over here. You're high enough. Or like, hey, you know, like, I'm waiting for you to go to that side of the pond. And the falcon, you know, depending on how you train it, it, it knows these signals. Okay, fine. Your falcon is now ready. It's in a great position. It's going to use the wind. Okay. It's time to flush the ducks. So this is why the ducks leave the water. Because you are jumping over the levee. You are running up on the ducks. And you're scaring them. And you know, it's it's a mistake. The ducks are like, oh no, what's that? And so they get scared. And they leave the water. So those ducks flushed. They're in the danger zone. That falcon is going to take the opportunity to come down from the sky and smash a duck. And... You know, that's great. That's a one and done. But let's just say your falcon misses. Guess what? Those ducks are going to either keep on continuing or this is where, you know, you having to be active in the hunt comes in. You see those that your falcon missed. You see that the ducks are now in this open area. Well, guess what? The closest safety thing is the pond. So you want to hurry up and get away from that pond and maybe, you know, like lay on the ground or get low. Make yourself not intimidating and say, hey, ducks, come back to this pond because those ducks are looking everywhere like, oh, God, we got to get back to safety. Chances are they're going to turn around and just try to get down back on that water as fast as they can. Okay, that's fine. Good. Good job. So you wait for your falcon to go up and over again, and you get, you know, maybe one more good reflush. You wait till he's in position, and then you go in and try and flush those ducks again. Mm -hmm. Now, the second flush is usually a lot harder because these ducks are smart. You might get them up and off the water, or, you know, this is also a good reason to have a dog. You bring the dog into play they'll go and swim out into the water and help you get the ducks up and off. But, uh, you know, hopefully your falcon goes in and crushes a duck on the second reflush. That's awesome. 
this danger. Imagine that, dude. You're out there instead of your, you know. It's so much fun, and yeah. there's so much thought and strategy that goes into this. So, where do you see yourself in the next few years when it comes to, you know, falconry? Hmm. Well, you know, you fly the bird that you have the habitat for. Um, right now, I am in western central Louisiana where we have the piney woods. So that kind of leaves me with a little bit of woodcock, not so much waterfowl, unfortunately, because we talked about the setup that you need. Um, Big falcons are not an option for me out there. You know, too many woods, not enough like open fields to make it worth my while. So, you know, my goshawk is a pretty good fit and um, maybe a red tail again. Awesome. Yeah, I think that'd be super cool. It's like Andrew. Uh, so we mentioned this a little earlier before you hopped on. She knows John, the gentleman that we ran into mm-hmm. with the red tail, uh, and this like the the dynamic of like having like because the just to remind me or Brittany to remind us is the red tail the largest hawk species that is capable of or is it the largest hawk species in north america as in something that can be used for falconry yeah yeah it's the one that you're gonna want to use that's the largest um we do have a larger hawk in north america called a ferruginous hawk but it needs a very specific landscape to be effective it would be open landscape um this bird would more or less be for rabbits it's not as dynamic as a red-tailed hawk. And honestly, not that I've tried to fly a Ferruginous, just based on other people's experience they've told me and other stuff. Red-tail is just as good. You know, it's better. Like, why, why do that when you would have less? Doesn't a red-tail proportionally have, like, larger talons, too? Yes. So a red tail is going to have a bigger feet, which equals, you know, the type of prey that it can grab, Mm -hmm. where this other hawk might have a larger body doesn't necessarily mean it has larger feet. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, Andrew, do you have any any other questions? That's all I got. So, (laughs) uh, Brittany, um, just one last thing. If anyone's just curious to learning more about falconry, again, where are some of those places that you know people can go and check out? There's more details, uh, and also maybe find some of these groups online or anything like that to figure out. You know, is this something potentially they want to you know go on an endeavor with? Yeah. So, like I said, most states do have a club. So if you Google your state's name and falconry chances are it will pop up also many of these clubs have facebook groups that you can join and they'll announce like meetings and things you can get involved with um and you know worst case contact your state your state's um wildlife and fisheries is going to have all the information you need because they will have a falconry coordinator awesome well, Brittany, we appreciate you spending some time with us and having this conversation. It's very interesting. I guess one of those things is like you don't know anybody who does it until you meet somebody. And then once you meet somebody, it's like, okay, maybe it's for you, maybe it's not. But it's extremely fascinating because, again, you know, it's one thing to hunt with a dog. It's another thing to hunt with a, a bird of prey. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's fascinating. So, Brittany, thank you for coming on. And, uh, again, best luck to you in Louisiana and uh, your next, uh, next coming season. Also, I want to see an update with the Kestrel on a Starling. Oh, yes. That's definitely, once I get home from Nashville, 
that's what I hope to accomplish within this week is catching our first starling and getting that rolling and she'll, you know, put the dots together and we're, we're going to actually go to a competition in March. So we're gearing up. Awesome. That's awesome. awesome. Real quick, just, okay, because you said it. I ask, <laughs> oh, okay, no. What, what consists of that competition? Oh, so it's called Starling Camp. It's in Wichita Falls, Texas, and a couple of our falconers. Like I said, these are these are our little candy shop birds. Like they're just fun. So we set up these like fun competitions. So we're gonna all head out there, and we're gonna just see how many starlings we can each like catch. Awesome. Yeah. Well, perfect. Well, Brittany, thank you again for coming on. All listeners out there, we appreciate y'all listening. And uh, like again, Michael Pike would say on every episode, but he's not on this episode. <laughs> y'all stay southern. Y'all go ahead and write down the dates, June 28th through June the 30th. Go ahead and just mark those off your calendar so you can be at the Dalton Convention Center in Dalton, Georgia for the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard a a ton of content from that expo last year that we posted. Uh, We talked about it a ton. Look, if you're the kind of person that listens to this podcast, this show was literally made for you. It was literally designed for you, which means you're going to love it. You know, all the best companies in mobile hunting are going to be there. A lot of the best deer killers in the Southeast are going to be there. A lot of our past podcast guests are going to be there. It's just, it's going to be an incredible event. And hey, if you've been looking to either get into a saddle or maybe a mobile lock-on setup or just a different kind of tree stand setup, I'm telling you, it's worth the investment to go to this show because they're all going to be there and you, you will get to try all of them in person before you buy it. So you don't have to order something online and then wait for it and then try it when it comes in to see if you really like it, you're going to get to go put your hands on everything all in one day, test it all out and figure out exactly what works best for you and have it taken care of before deer season starts. So like I said, go ahead and put it on your calendar, guys. It's a no brainer. You got to be at the show. Again, it's Friday, June 28th through Sunday, June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. We absolutely cannot wait to meet you guys there and talk hunting. So we'll see you at the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo in Dalton, Georgia.